first of all, I'd just like to ask you a quick question with regards to New Blood. Obviously, right. you, you've stated that you wanted the series to be a breath of fresh air, something, something new. What was your inspiration for this? Have crime dramas become a little bit stale, in your opinion? That's all true, yes. I mean, New Blood just simply came out of a desire, first of all, to write for a younger audience after having done Foil's War for 15 or 16 years. And it was also very much inspired by my feeling that younger people today have so many challenges that I, when I was their age, didn't. You know, looking around my son's friends and people starting out their careers in London, it's just so difficult to get a job, to get enough money to get somewhere to live. House prices are so crazy. Um, Short-term contracts are now the sort of norm, so getting a career started is hard. You know, there are just so many different challenges in life now for young people. It seemed quite fun to sort of, or interesting, to tackle them in a crime series uh, and to look at two protagonists who are also, you know, Polish, English and and Iranian English, so are sort of, in a way, calling them outsiders isn't quite accurate, but you know what I mean. They're sort of, you know, not establishment as such. So it was just trying to do everything different and to shake up the crime drama and to write about things that matter. Yes, of course. I mean, I guess they are very different in the sense that they are away from your, your typical white middle-class detective person that you would maybe associate the likes of Sherlock Holmes with, or, or maybe some of the more... I guess, established detective well, figures, you could say. Sherlock Holmes is the grandfather of all modern crime, so all modern detectives really begin with Sherlock Holmes. But if you look at the sort of the gamut of detectives on television, they do tend to be middle-aged, grumpy, maybe with a drink problem or a wife problem or a, they're philanderers. You know, they're, they're grumpy old men, basically. And um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's a lot of very, very good detective drama on television. But it just struck me that to actually have two 25-year-olds in believe without all that baggage, with all the optimism and the energy and the sort of forward-looking that comes with being that age, just struck me as sort of a, a, an interesting way to go. Anna Leskiewicz from the New Statesman said that New Blood was, I quote, the most accurate portrayal of London millennial life on television. In what I, ways did you mould New Blood to appeal to young people, would you say? Was it what? largely based on, on the experience that your son had with living in London? Yeah, I mean, I saw that piece in the New Statesman. I was absolutely gratified by it because it was exactly what I was trying to do. My work over many you know, years now has involved me with young people. I mean, I'm still uh, visiting schools occasionally, and I, I meet a lot of teenagers in my work, young actors and all the rest of it. And I'm just, and, and as you correctly say, my sons are both in their mid to late 20s and have friends whose careers I'm watching with sort of interest, the sort of difficulty of, of getting started. But also, you know, I read a lot of books and magazines. There was, a, there was one book in Stanley that really inspired the show. A book I read, I think it was called Jilted Generation, I'm afraid I can't remember the names of the authors, but it was a very, very cogent, well-argued view that, uh, that, that the next generation, the so-called Y generation, the first generation to be worse off than its parents financially and, and you know, commercially, but that generation had in some way been cheated of their birthright. To be honest with you, when the Brexit vote happened, my children were, were both very upset and annoyed by it and felt that, that their future had been stolen from them by, um, by that older generation. And I don't know... You know, I don't want to get into the politics of all that, but, but I myself was a little bit sad that we left Europe for that very reason, that I wonder if we haven't taken something of the birthright of the next generation. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people in Exeter definitely echo that sentiment, so I'm sure that that applies over here as well. Now, one more thing I wanted to ask you with regards to moulding old and new generations was uh, obviously with your work Trigger Mortis, uh, which I have read and I absolutely loved. It Thank was you. I loved the uh, classic Fleming language that you fused with modern social trends and, and ideas, most uh, most notably the, uh, the female protagonist I thought were brilliant. Now, what I wanted to ask you was, now that social norms have, have changed so much, does the character of Bond need to be reinvented? 
Well, first of all, thank you for your kind comments on trigger mortis, which was a, an attempt to try and square the circle between the sort of attitudes of the 50s, which really are unacceptable now, and the attitudes particularly to, to women and sort of what are uh, inverted commas one now does not call bond girls. Um, you know, the, the, the times have moved on, and it was trying to be true to the original, whilst at the same time not pissing off a modern audience was sort of uppermost in my mind. In answer to your question, Bond has changed. I mean, the brilliance of Bond, particularly in the film versions of him, is that he somehow seems to mould himself finely to every generation that he addresses. So, you know, you start with Sean Connery, who is, who is one sort of Bond, then he became Roger Moore, later on you've got Pierce Brosnan, now you've got I think very brilliantly, Daniel Craig, and each Bond has somehow worked for the time it was filmed. If you look at some of the early or middle period Roger Moore films, you wince at the sort of the terrible jokes and sort of the awful sexual double entendre and the mm -hmm. attitude to, to the women in those films, but they were right at the time. They entertained the audience and it was felt right then. Daniel Craig's Bond is a much tougher, harder, more, more emotionally damaged Bond. Uh, and, you know, in the last film where he had a relationship with an older woman, which incidentally I thought could have been played out more, you know, he is, uh, to a certain extent, you know, uh, adapting himself to the to a 21st century. The genius of the character is, and this is also true, incidentally, of Sherlock Holmes, is that no matter when he is portrayed, he seems to work. In terms of, however... You know, ticking politically correct boxes. Should Bond smoke? Should he drink? Should he drive fast cars? Should he be, you know, female, male, whatever? Mm. You know, should one change the uh, formula? I think there is a danger in throwing baby out with bathwater. One has to be true to Ian Fleming's original character, at least to a certain extent, for the character really to have a sort of an authenticity and to be able to continue. Mm. Well, you've, you've obviously written both James Bond novels, and Trigger Mortis, and also Sherlock Holmes novels, and you mentioned earlier that you believe that Sherlock Holmes is, is the, the grandfather, the, the sort of the original detective figure. Do, would you say that what makes these characters so timeless is the fact that, as you say, we now live in an age where perhaps young people do feel a little bit disillusioned and these, these characters sort of provide that stability that maybe people who do feel a little bit disillusioned and a little bit sort of downbeat seek and, and that sort of role model that people can as aspire to become, that's what makes them so timeless. Um... I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, because I don't necessarily see that young people who feel disillusioned today, or who feel are uh, either manipulated or, or sort of uh, exploited in some way, are going to open a, a, a copy of Sherlock Holmes or James Bond and feel that everything is all right after all. So I don't, I don't accept that as a premise, although I do think that, that young people might have every reason to be a little bit sort of hacked off now. And one of the things that I like about my sons and my son's friends is they don't seem to have that attitude. They remain very positive, very energized, very uh, forward-looking. And, and, and I think that's very much part of your generation. You are the entrepreneurial generation now, uh, which, which is great. In terms of why these characters last, I think it is because they, have, they, they are as much icons as characters. They, they contain within them some kind of eternal truth. Uh, with Sherlock Holmes, it's not just his cleverness as a detective and the sort of the, you know, his investigative abilities and forensic uh, talent. It's his friendship with Holmes. It's that extraordinary relationship. It's the fact that he is such a perfect snapshot of a time, of a period. Uh, that is true to an extent of Bond, who exemplifies uh, that sort of daring do of Britain. You know, it goes back to John Buchan, to the, uh, the stiff upper lip, the adventurer. It goes back even to Holmes, the Edwardian adventurer. It's all in there. And at the same time, Fleming delivers brilliant 
brilliantly a portrait of Britain in the 50s, coming out of the war, losing its stature in the world, really, but still holding on to past values with these extraordinary super agents who could uh, represent in inverted commas, the best of British. So I think that they, are, they, they have a permanence. I think that, that that might be the answer to your question. Mm-hmm. We do like permanence. When things are so difficult, everything is in flux. When we look at the future at the moment, and it all seems so uncertain, Donald Trump over in America, for example, uh, South Korea and North Korea, and mm-hmm. the possibility of something horrible happening there. When, when the world is looking... Um, dangerous and difficult, we look for permanence, and then great characters in great literature come into their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a question for you now from uh, from our social media panel, uh, most, most, uh, more specifically from the, the 007 Society at the University of Exeter here. Oh, right. And, uh, and they ask, uh, were you ever tempted to write any young Bond books? Charlie Higson did a fantastic job with young Bond. I was actually asked if I'd like to do it at one time and said no, because I've got Alex Ryder. So um, I didn't want to, as it were, compete with myself. Um, so the short answer to the question is, is no. I, 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 I didn't have to hesitate when they asked me to do James Bond as an adult. I, I had no interest in doing him as a child. Although, as I say, I think Charlie did a brilliant job. And was, was Bond very much an inspiration for you to then become a writer, Bond and, and, and Sherlock Holmes? Um, they were both inspirations in a way. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was given to when I was 17, the complete stories, and I just enjoyed them largely because they're so often set in boring suburbs. I lived in Stanmore, Middlesex, which was the exemplified a boring suburb. <laughs> and the idea of it, a sort of a, uh, a, a, a temple in India, a lost treasure, uh, a conspiracy can reach out with its tentacles to the sort of London suburbs. That's a, that's a story of Sign of Four. That really appealed to me as a child. At the same time, being in a very unpleasant boarding school when I was eight to 13, the Bond films were perfect escapism, year after year, watching those films. You know, you didn't get to see women in, in bikinis unless you went to a Bond room. You didn't get to see, uh, God, I sound so old when I'm talking now, but <laughs> nonetheless, at that time, you know, package holidays hadn't been, hadn't been invented. So if you wanted to see the Caribbean, you went to a Bond film. Hmm. So they were, they were a big influence in my life. I'm not saying that they were the reason I became writers, but they definitely steered me in different directions. Holmes into writing murder mystery and, and Fleming, James Bond, into writing Alex Ryder. Mm-hmm. Another, another question from our from our social media panel is that is it true that uh, your wife significant role in the writing of Trigger Mortis and does she often have a say in what you write? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. You're very faint. Are you saying that my wife gets involved in writing? Uh, yes, or in the in the writing of the uh, of, of Trigger Mortis? Not at all. No, I well, well actually hold on, I'll, I'll stare back on that. My wife, Jill Green, is a television producer and she works very very closely with me on all my TV scripts. For her, New Blood, Foils, War, mm-hmm. Injustice, Collision, and shows like that. Um, in terms of my books, she's normally the first or second person. My son normally reads my books first. My wife reads them as well. And she is a very, very tough critic. When she read Trigger Mortis in the earlier draft, um, she thought that I had completely gone over the line in Bond's relationship to women um, and some of the language used. It was very accurate to Fleming, uh, but it nonetheless... It just, I, I was talking earlier about sort of offending people in the 21st century, and she found just one or two words here and there offensive. And so I did a fair amount of rewriting based on her 
insights and i'm very grateful for them because she was absolutely right i see and so the the writing process of writing books is very much a a, a team a team exercise isn't it you would you mind no, just sort of going no, through the process of of kind of producing the final for final product for us television is a team effort film hmm. is a team effort uh they're collaborative books are much much more isolated they're much more what i want and what i think works and i am my own sort of critic i give myself notes you know and a novel may have four drafts four or five drafts i do get notes from my publisher i get notes from my wife and from my son i listen to people obviously um uh, i have an editor but the, at the end of the day you know a hundred thousand words in a novel 95,000 of them you know are, are going to definitely be my own the the, 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 the um the amount of input anybody else has is, is slight. And also, in a book, incidentally, I can, if I want to, just say no. I can say, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to just do what I think is right. I think that's a mistake, because I think there is an element of collaboration in novels, and it's, and it's wise to listen to what, what people are saying. Um, television, however, I might do 10, 11, 12, 13 drafts. Film might be 20 or even 30 drafts. And everybody has notes. The producer has notes. The actor has notes. The people who are putting the money in have notes. The, um, the, the director, the designer, the props people, everybody comes at you with notes. So, you know, in the end, you, end, you, 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 you have so many different voices. And, and if you don't listen to them, you'll probably get fired. Well, it's fascinating, and thank you very much for, for going through the sort of the pr okay. procedure. Because me most most sort of young aspiring aspiring writers uh, here at Exeter, I know we have a we have a number of, of uh, young aspiring writers, and, and exposing our student newspaper is also very good at their creative section. And uh, I'm sure they'll be they'll be delighted to well, hear. To them, sort of I would the say this: that one of the greatest struggles you have, particularly as a young writer, is to know when to listen to advice, when to take notes, and when to stick your feet in and and stick to your guns. And it is, it's a very, very hard thing to get right because, you know, it, 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 if you're talking to somebody who is very experienced and knows what they're talking about, you have a right to listen to them. But your own inner voice is the one that guides you as a writer. And, and, you, and I think it is perilous to ignore that voice, you know, simply to, um, to, to try and please somebody else. You know, it, it's, I get asked by young people to read their work and to comment on it. I never do. And the reason I don't is, is that what do I know? Why should they listen to me? You know, yes, I've sold books. Yes, I've been around a long time. But it's not necessarily the case that I am a better writer than them. There is, very, there is a strong possibility that somebody is listening to this now who is a much, much better writer than me. And in 20 or 30 years' time, I will be dead and forgotten. They will be being interviewed and, and, and writing. Why should I uh, get in the way of that process? Hopefully, we will inspire a, a new generation of, of writers, perhaps in, in this interview. That's they're the, already out there. I mean, you know, I meet a lot of young people. I'm on the board of the Old Vic, and uh, I, mm. I mentor a young writer for them and uh, such. I meet a lot of people who are, who are writing and, and, and working in my field, and I'm, you know, I, I am aware of, of writing is, there is a tide, you know, in the affairs of men and, and in the affairs of writers, and, and it is a tide in which older writers recede inevitably and younger writers the young turks come out and make it their world which is how it should be let's move on to alex Ryder now um which is obviously when when i when Go i ahead, mentioned yeah. when i mentioned to uh to people sort of i'm about to interview Anthony Horowitz, the first thing that comes to their mind is is Alex Ryder. They say, obviously, a huge success, uh, over 90 million copies sold. Um, That's true. Did you ever feel anxious to sort of move on from Alex Ryder? Did you ever well, feel that sort of It's an interesting anxiety? question, because when you rang me, I was actually writing the next Alex Ryder novel, which is going to come out next year. Mm. Um, there were 
two occasions on which I decided to move on with Alex. After Archangel, I killed him. Oh, not after Archangel, after Scorpio, I killed him. Uh, he came back in Archangel. And I didn't mean to kill him. He was never really going to be dead, but I thought I should have a little rest from him. It didn't happen because people were so upset that he seemed to be dead that they demanded a new book immediately. So that's what happened there. Much like and Sherlock then, Holmes at uh, Reichenbach. Sorry? Much like Sherlock Holmes at uh, Reichenbach. Well, not exactly. Sherlock Holmes was killed at the Reichenbach Falls in 1893 because mm. Holmes was sick of him and couldn't, couldn't be bothered to write any more. Mm. He came back because effectively Doyle I did I say Holmes, I meant Doyle. Doyle really needed the money. I mean he he, he uh there was public demand but also there was a huge mortgage and a very big house and uh and lots of expenses. Mm. So, you know, he returned to what had been a cash cow. Mm -hmm. Uh for me, I never, ever got fed up with Alex Ryder. I've always liked him as a character. My biggest fear was not to overwrite him. You know, I think the trouble with being a modern writer is that you can um, end up in a sort of a pigeonhole. You, you, you do something very well, so that's all anybody wants from you. You write the same character, the same book, the same story, more or less, year after year after year, and you earn money from it, and you're successful and do well. But to me, that's not what writing is about. Writing should be more about adventure and experiment and, and exploration. So I was very nervous about sort of being tied down to Alex, and always said there would only be ten books. There were only ten books. I finished with Russian Roulette four years ago. But for one reason or another, I've decided to return to the character, and uh, a new book comes out next year. Well, I'm, I'm definitely excited, and I'm sure audiences around... around well, well, it's nice of you to say so. What's funny is, of course, is that people who read Alex in their teens and who hear that there's a new book are quite excited about it because I think there's something quite pleasurable in returning to a, you know, something that you loved in your childhood. For me, it's Tintin. I still love Tintin, the films, the books, uh, and I love going back to them because it reminds me of when I was a teenager and such. Uh, for others now, it's Alex, which is, which is great. I think it's one of those things that... that certain generations I think my generation definitely grew up with I mean we, we grew up reading Alex Ryder books and being inspired by Alex Ryder books so, so I can only say on behalf of on behalf of sort of my generation thank you thank you very much well, for I'm, I'm very kind it's very kind to say it I mean for me you know as horrific it is, as it is to be getting older and older sort of I, I can do nothing about but one of the few pleasures of it is is to meet people who are like yourself in their 20s and who are in possibly the media or in sort of the arts world or you know who have sort of to a, to a minute extent been, been inspired or, or influenced by these books and I, I always say that it's, ra it's rather nice to feel that I have been one molecule in your bloodstream for, for you know much of your young life and, and when I meet people or talk to people like yourself you know I do get I have to be honest and say I get a, I get a real buzz out of it how important would you say it is for writers to appeal to a younger audience, much like Alex, Alex Ryder did, especially nowadays in the age of social media and, and that sort of thing? Well, there are two separate questions in that. I mean, how important is it to be in tune with social media, to have your work out on, you know, on, on some kind of digital forum? Obviously, it's good. If I can have my book on your, on your, on your mobile phone, then I'll, I'll put it there, or on your, on your e-reader, whatever. That's all helpful. Is it important to appeal to young writers, young readers, sorry? Um, I guess so, yeah. I mean, especially if you're writing YA fiction, which I'm now doing again. But, but I've never really begun my work thinking about who is the audience this is going to appeal to. How am I going to make this work um, appeal to 20-year-olds? I write the stories I want to write, the, the characters, the, the, the worlds, and hope that they'll find an audience. I don't sit at my desk here in London and just um, aim in the hope of sort of 
snagging, you know, extra students or or, or whatever. It's 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 the, the work itself is what matters. I'm going to take another question from from social media now. Uh, it's related to to Alex Ryder again, and it's it says, uh, ha- "Are you disappointed that only one of the Alex Ryder books was ever adapted into a film?" Yes, I think I am a little disappointed. I mean, Stormbreaker, which came out in 2003, is one of those sort of near misses you get in the cinema. I mean, if the film had been a big hit, and it was at the time expected it would be, then by now all ten books would have been adapted, and who knows, you know, maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing this interview, I'd be sitting on my own private Caribbean island, you know, quaffing champagne or whatever. <laughs> so I'm disappointed, not not really for the financial rewards, but because that would have been a fun adventure to go on, to see all ten books filmed and, and such. Uh, and And... I don't quite know what went wrong with Stormbreaker. I wrote the screenplay, so I'm partly responsible. Films are big hits or not big hits for so many different reasons. It's like tossing a coin a hundred times. And if you get 90 heads, then you're a hit. But if you don't, you aren't. And it's there's no way of controlling it. You do the best work you can, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, and you move on. But but in the short answer to your question is, you know, I wish it had been a, a, a more of a success. I don't think it's a, an entirely bad film. I think Alex Pettifer, who played Alex Ryder, was great, um, and it had a lot going for it. It just didn't quite work. Is there a chance we might get to see Alex Ryder perform on the, or uh, adapted, sorry, on the, uh, on the small screen, perhaps? There, are, there have been discussions about it quite recently. People have been coming to me and saying they'd like to do Alex on the small screen. You know, shows um, like um, our Stranger Things have shown that uh, television with children in the lead can work. And there is a very big appetite now for series television. So if you've got 10, 11, 12 books, you've then got a lot of material to feed a television show for some years. So I think there's every possibility that it'll happen. Uh, I can't say it's going to happen anytime soon, but, but people are talking. Wonderful. Well, once again, we, the excitement builds with, with <laughs> regard to, to Alex Ryder. Uh, another question we, we have here from our, our social media panel is, uh, so far, most of your stories involve leading male roles. Is that something that you would like to change in the future? Would you like to perhaps bring in maybe a lead, a lead female role? Well, uh, Magpie Murders, which is my next novel out in October, which is a sort of an adult whodunit, has a female lead. So I have done it. It's there. It's on its way. Uh, Oblivion also had a very, very strong uh, female character in it. Uh, for, the, for the young adult fiction, I've always felt more comfortable having a male lead, if only because I'm drawing on my own memories of being a boy and being 14. Um, I think that's where writing for young people begins with your own emotions at that time and, it, and therefore it was much easier to, to stick with my own gender um, you yourself began this interview by saying that the character in Trigger Mortis is a strong female lead so I do do it occasionally uh, Sherlock Holmes obviously couldn't have any women in it because you know that would have been un, un, uh, uh, untrue to the original material mm-hmm. um, uh, Sherlock Holmes doesn't have girlfriends uh, but I'm not sure there's an implied criticism in, the, in this question. If there is, no, I no, I don't know. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to accept it. I, I don't, I'm not going to bridle at, at that. Um, it is perhaps a weakness in my work that I have veered so strongly over the years towards male characters. And lastly, as a writer, how do you deal with the constant demand for material, for new material, in the age of the internet and social media? Well, if by that you mean the sort of add-on material, the sort of interviews, the um, essays, the commentary, the blogging, whatever, 
that I find difficult because I'm working so hard on, on the amount of words I'm writing anyway, you know, the novels, the television, the plays, and the journalism, that to actually sit down and force myself to blog or whatever is something I find difficult uh, and time-consuming. Um, I like Twitter pr primarily because, um, you know, it's 140 characters, and I can make jokes, I can answer people's questions, I can... Um, comment on things i can i can do what i want but i can do it very quickly so that's the the, the platform that i most prefer um i do have a website anthonyhorowitz.com and um i occasionally post material on that and um and try and keep it sort of uh fresh and up to date but, but i have people who work on it for me and uh i i spend too little time on it myself i should do more have you adapted your own writing style since the onset of the internet and and sort of new technology has no, come about? No, I don't about. think I have. I think that, that what I'm writing or what I do is fairly classical. It's fairly traditional sort of writing. Uh, it's very narrative-based. It's, uh, it's stories. It's character. Um, and I have always wanted to write an e-book. It is one of my ambitions, and I will do it one day, to write a detective story specifically for uh, a digital platform. The idea being that if you don't believe something... If a character says something and you don't believe it, you can swipe it and um, the truth will come out. Or you can actually tap in other questions, get other information that is hidden in the text. It seems to me that for all the talk of e-books and Kindle and, and e-readers and all the rest of it, nobody has actually yet come up with a novel specifically using the strengths of the Internet. You know, for example, you, can, you, could, you could have a, a, book where you, a book where you tap on a character's name and you get a, a photo of them. Or if, they, if, it, if you're looking at clues and you want to look at the, the murder scene, you can tap and up that comes. And you can look around it so you're not just reading, you're doing other things. It's interesting that, you know, I have worked in my time on computer games and there is still a huge gulf between gaming which is, you know, this vast and, and multi-billion dollar industry now, uh, and storytelling and wonderful computer games still, to my mind, don't actually have wonderful stories attached to them. Uh, and it would be very, very interesting if somebody could finally synthesize the two and come up with a story that actually engaged not just digitally on a choice of whether you kill the guy in the doorway or not, but, but the reason why you should need to and whether there are actually ramifications of doing so, that sort of thing. Do you think that the sort of multi multi-dimensional approach, uh, the sort of visual and also the uh, the sort of the text text-based approach, is something that maybe reading is is going to come to maybe in the future? Do I think reading is inevitably going to change. I mean, reading somehow survives, just as candles do. It that's the oldest analogy in the books. You know, we have electric light bulbs all over the house, but candles are still part of our life. I think that books and paper books and reading are, to an extent, candles, although I think they burn brighter than that, too. And there is still something irreplaceable about them. I don't believe for a single minute that reading is going to die. I don't think that reading uh, classics is going to die. They're always going to be there, and I think that their importance is as, is as great, if not greater now, than, than it's ever been. But at the same time, the way people use their leisure hours and the way people are uh, adapt to, uh, the way people apply themselves to, um, to, to visual media of any sort has changed. You know, the classic example, which somebody of my age always strikes me as sort of slightly shocking, is to look at a family in a restaurant. You've got mum and dad maybe talking to each other, but the kids are all on iPads. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking up, they're just simply looking down, playing whatever it is they're playing, and they're not part of that family group. And that, to me, is slightly shocking. Sometimes it's all four people, you know, the mum, the dad, dad's on his mobile phone, mum is maybe on hers, the kids are on the iPads, whatever. Um, 
that's the future. And I don't sit here saying, oh, God, isn't it ghastly, isn't it awful, why aren't they going, doing the old-fashioned um, conversation like when I was a boy? But it does slightly make me feel that the world is changing around me and that the future is perhaps, like it is for every old generation, going to be unrecognisable. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that for, for me personally, one way that my, my parents used to get me into, into reading and stuff was to read me books and my brothers and sisters' books uh, before we go to sleep, and that's something that I feel as though is perhaps with the onset of social media is largely also going to going to die out potentially and is, is it important do you think to, to sort of keep that that going and sort of encourage people to continue and preserve that sort of well, it's in- certainly important but more than that it's enjoyable i mean you know when my kids were growing up one of the greatest pleasures in life was to read to them you know life is so fast paced now nobody has any time for anything and um relating to your children uh, uh, or relating to your parents, for that matter, is something that has to sort of find its moment in the day because everybody is rushing around. Even the family meal, as I've just been talking and saying, has to a certain extent disappeared. You know, the fact that when I was a boy, we all came together regularly every evening at 7 o'clock. Now people snack, graze, rush. Everyone is, uh, is in a hurry. That moment in an evening, the 20 minutes, the 30 minutes, when your child, aged up to around about maybe 10, 11, whatever, is in bed about to go to sleep and everything quietens down for a moment and you actually read together is a wonderfully enjoyable bonding moment and when i'm giving lectures i often say or talking to you know adult groups your children won't share their computer games with you a book is a level playing field it's an opportunity to relate to your child in a way that you may never do again so yes reading to a child is one of the great pleasures in life i miss doing it how would you, Anthony Horowitz, a man of so many talents and achievements, want to be remembered? Well, it's a very kind question. Um, I suppose Alex Ryder is my legacy. I mean, you've said in this interview that a lot of young people have grown up with Alex Ryder, and I think that would be nice if people remember Alex. But as for myself being remembered, blue plaques, gravestones, wreaths, annual memorial services... Death is death, and it, it, it never really enters my mind as to, as to whether um, you know, anything is valid after that. Are you very much a live-the-moment sort of person? Indeed, sir. Okay, okay. Well, Mr. Anthony Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for they, they say you should never meet your heroes, but clearly whoever thought of that saying has never met you, sir. So <laughs> thank you very it much. It is true, and you're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> Have a lovely day. And, uh, yeah, you too. Really nice talking to you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.